My name is Hermine Hartman with Indigo Studio. Today we talk to David Masiotra. He's a writer, an author. His latest book, I Am Somebody, Why Reverend Jesse Jackson Matters. He's a political columnist with Salon and he also writes for Atlantic Magazine, teaches literature and writing at Indiana University. He takes a deep dive on Reverend Jackson's contributions to America. And he writes that Jackson is one of the most important civil rights figures in the 20th century with bookends of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and President Barack Obama. He puts Jackson in a historical perspective. And we're gonna to talk to him about the book and Jackson's career. And then we're going to talk to the legend himself. Stay tuned. David, welcome to Indigo Studio. Oh, thank you for having me. You've written a beautiful book, wonderful book, and a definitive book. Why did you write this book and tell us uh, how long did it take you to write it? Well, I had the, the pleasure and the privilege of first meeting Reverend Jesse Jackson six years ago to interview him on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of his first historic and groundbreaking uh, presidential campaign. And it was a true uh, blessing of my life that he and I developed a rapport. Mm -hmm. So that first interview led to many more interviews and I was able to accompany him on some of his travels. And I realized that one article or even a series of articles was insufficient to capture this momentous life and to capture the profound implications of this life. Because as I argue in the book, uh, Reverend Jackson is the most effective and consequential living civil rights leader. So through a study of his life, his accomplishments, his struggles, his battles, we not only learn about, as the subtitle suggests, why Jesse Jackson matters, but we also learn about what it is that Reverend Jackson fought. So you say, you write, that mm -hmm. Reverend Jackson is one of the most important civil rights figures in the 20th century. Elaborate on that. Well, he was an aide to Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. and he worked to universalize the franchise. He also worked to bring import the movement from the South to the Northern United States mm -hmm. and to urbanize the movement. Mm -hmm. uh, so to take it out of the pastoral precincts and into the major Northern cities, and he did so with what Middlebury University calls the most important but least known civil rights story in American history, and that's Operation Breadbasket and the early years of Operation Push, which led to the employment of thousands of black workers, the admission of thousands of workers into trade unions, and the procurement of millions of dollars in profit for black business owners who were otherwise excluded. And then in the 80s, you get to his presidential campaigns which really laid the foundation for the diversification of the Democratic Party and the transformation of the Democratic Party into a progressive movement. So he really laid the groundwork with the presidential runs, 84, 88. A lot of people say he made the path for President Obama, but he really made the path for Clinton, mm -hmm. President Obama, and Hillary Clinton's mm -hmm. run. He changed the Democratic Party. Talk about that, what that change looks like. 
Well, there is no way to comprehend the modern Democratic Party without understanding and appreciating Reverend Jackson's campaign and influence. So in 84, he strongly advocated for a more prominent role for women in the party, Mm -hmm. which led to Geraldine Ferraro on Mm -hmm. the ticket, and then much later, as you say, Hillary Clinton, and now Kamala Harris. Uh, He acted as a docent, as a valet, bringing blacks and Latinos and Native Americans and gays. He was the first candidate to support gay rights. Farmers. Yes, Appalachia and also whites. farmers and progressive whites mm-hmm. connected to activist networks into the party. And it's also important to add that he changed the rules of the Democratic Party uh, in terms of delegate allocation, mm-hmm. without which Barack Obama would have never won the nomination Winner takes in all. 2008. Yes. Bernie Sanders came out of the Jackson campaigns, mm-hmm. Paul Wellstone. So a whole host of figures who, as I say, helped transform the Democratic Party into from a corporate party into a party that at least aspires to give representation to multicultural and progressive From the corporate America. party to the people's party. Exactly. And as well you, said. you say it in your book, is he, uh, he put the Democrat in the democracy, in yes. the Democratic Party. Yes, democratize democracy. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Reverend Jackson did when he was running that uh, is too often overlooked is during the debates, and Biden was on the debate mm-hmm. stage, and they talked about European uh, policies. They talked about NATO. They talked about China. And Reverend Jackson said, but what about Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. in South Africa? And that was really the beginning of the release of Nelson Mandela yes. from jail. You talk about that in the book? Oh, yes. Well, a great deal of the book is devoted to a study of Reverend Jackson's international work because he's an international dissident, an international figure and fighter for peace. And he was the first major American figure to support Nelson Mandela and call for the demolition of the apartheid regime in South Africa. He was also the first to call for a two-state solution in the Mm Israel-Palestine conflict, a position that now is mainstream. And then, of course, we know that outside of... But it wasn't then. No. Mm -hmm. Just like many of his domestic policy positions, universal health care, tuition-free higher ed, he was 30 years ahead of the Democratic Party. Now the Democratic Party, including Joe Biden, is just beginning to catch up to keep pace with the work Jackson was doing in the 80s. That you label as the sociology of equality. Yes. Yeah, he transformed the demography and ideology of the party. And much of that was international. So even outside of those presidential campaigns, Reverend Jackson risked his life and was responsible for the emancipation of hundreds of hostages hundreds of political prisoners in countries ranging from Cuba to Iraq, from Syria to Bosnia. David, on that note, we'll be right back with more on Reverend Jesse Jackson. Hey, 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 we're guests here. Close the door. It's probably why our energy bill is so much higher than yours. You know, ComEd makes it easy to save money and energy. Hey, look, we even got an instant rebate on the smart thermostat. And rebates on Energy Star appliances, like this refrigerator. 
and this washer-dryer combo. Close the door! Find even more rebates from the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program at comed.com slash rebates. People will always come and go in our lives, but we all know those few who never left. The partners who've always had you covered. That friend you consider the best, because that's how they make you feel. At Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, we know what it means to be there, guiding you toward a healthier state of mind. Because the more we know as individuals, the healthier we all feel as a community. Through it all. Closed captioning is sponsored by the Illinois State Lottery. So, David, as you have studied, uh, been with, and seen Reverend Jackson in action, how would you describe his leadership style? Leadership style is, first of all, it's pastoral mm-hmm. in that he is a reverend and he attempts to locate the goodness in people. Pastoral more than political. Yes, and, and he attempts to locate common ground. Speaking about those uh, presidential campaigns, one of, some of the language that came out of those campaigns was, mm-hmm. let's leave the racial battleground, find economic common ground, and then reach for moral higher ground. That's the essential struggle of American history that one can read in the texts of Howard Zinn, the analysis of W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. uh, or find through the leadership of figures as diverse as Eugene Debs and Martin Luther King. But what people often miss is, even at the age of 79, his dedication. So he still spends every Christmas morning speaking with inmates at Cook County Jail. He, Going to the jail. Yes, yes, in the jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what many people miss is the, is the dedication and the commitment and it's serving people directly mm-hmm. while also telegraphing an alternative mm-hmm. to American policy, which is far too often corporate and unequal in its orientation. And he still marches. Still marches. Still still uh, on the battlefield. So are you familiar with Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast? Yes. So one of the and her things, first book, beautiful. the first book. Okay, so one of the things that I've concluded mm-hmm. from her wonderful analysis on racism and casteism in America is that Dr. King confronted America constitutionally. Reverend Jackson confronted America's caste system. Mm. Would you agree with that? Yes, that's a a really salient and thought provoking point. Uh, the last big effort of Dr. King's life before it was uh, tragically and unjustly snuffed out by a murderer uh, was a poor people's campaign. Mm-hmm. So uh, Reverend Jackson and I, he, he told me about how Dr. King gathered for his last birthday Native American leaders, Jewish leaders, Latino leaders, and white leaders from Appalachia to find ways to advocate against 
the cruel and disproportionate distribution of wealth that consigns so many people to lives of precarity in our country. And after Dr. King's tragic assassination, Reverend Jackson, I would argue more than anyone else, Mm -hmm. picked up that baton and advanced it into the corporate boardroom, into the governor's mansion, into the mayor's mansion, into the halls of Congress, and into the White House. One of the other things you point out in the book that a lot of people don't know, when Reverend Jackson ran for president, he didn't want to run for president. Mm-hmm. He, he was making the case that we could win black people, we could win the presidency, we can change the democracy. But he really went to Maynard Jackson first, mm-hmm. and then to Andrew, Andrew Young. Young second, And then after no takers, it was like, well. And also at the time, Reverend Jackson was leading what is remains to this day the most successful voter registration drive in American history. And everywhere on those stops, the people were chanting, run, Jesse, run. Mm -hmm. So it was a true populist campaign in that it was responsive Mm -hmm. to the people's needs, desires, and hopes. He's registered more people than any other single person ever in the history of the yes, country. You I know, know what the number's the num- in the millions. Six million. Okay. That's the number. Go. And now we'll be right back and we're going to talk to the legend himself, <laughs> Reverend Jesse Jackson. We're guests here. Close the door. It's probably why our energy bill is so much higher than yours. You know, ComEd makes it easy to save money and energy. Hey, look, we even got an instant rebate on this smart thermostat. And rebates on Energy Star appliances, like this refrigerator. And this washer-dryer combo. Close the door! Find even more rebates from the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program at comed.com slash rebates. People will always come and go in our lives, but we all know those few who never left. The partners who've always had you covered. That friend you consider the best, because that's how they make you feel. At Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, we know what it means to be there, guiding you toward a healthier state of mind. Because the more we know as individuals, the healthier we all feel as a community. Through it all. So now we're back, and Reverend Jackson has joined us. Reverend, thank you for being with us today. Reverend, describe your leadership style. In your words, what's, what's the Jesse Jackson leadership style? It comes out of situational leadership. Leadership must mold opinion, not follow opinion polls. So let me ask you this. When you ran for president and you changed the Democratic Party, was your foresight really what it did, or was it the moment? About the moment. See, uh, Lou Palmer was making the case, Harold Washington run for mayor and, and George Palmer. Harold came about one day and said, well, guys, 
I like my job as congressman. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to run. We kept pressing her. I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you guys will raise $250,000 and 50,000 new voters, I'll, I'll run. I'll consider running. Put 500,000 new voters to help of Ed Gardner and, and, and Renault Robinson and that group. These people who are not known made it happen. Reggie Kennedy and Mondale were coming to Chicago to defeat Harold mm-hmm. in the primary, mm-hmm. the Democratic primary. And uh, Daly, Kennedy was coming for Jane Barron, Mondale was coming for Daly. And so somebody said, this is the bankruptcy of liberalism. Somebody should run mm-hmm. to challenge this. Bankrupt of liberalism. Yeah, because if liberalism, we support you, you don't support us, that's bankrupt. So I asked Maynard Jackson, Moved to my house, made and say, Well, it's a good idea, but I'm just leaving politics, trying to make some money for my family. And I can't, but you, you should do it. No, no, I was, no, I was an organizer. What do you mean? Andy Young came to my house. Andy, you should do it. And it, it, won't, it won't work. It's impractical. We were rising back and forth. Then we started beginning to take polls. And uh, we finally decided. I was down south on the, the voter registration campaign. You were part of that. Ron Jesse Ron came out of that situation. So it seems to me that somebody had to run, and I had no preparation to run. And I remember President Barack meeting him one day at, uh, at downtown a, a sports club. He said, I was at the debate when you debated Mondale and Hart at Columbia University. I said to myself, Seth, this can happen. <laughs> the fact that he said it could happen, we were sowing seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying to be a trailblazer. He became a pathfinder once we knocked the trees down and began to make things happen. I'm excited about his candidacy because A, he won, but B, he fulfilled so many of our dreams. So, David, here's a question for you. In the book, you write about the Jesse Jackson factor. I got two corporate questions for you. What is the Jesse Jackson factor? How do you describe it? That's an interesting term because it began as a term of disparagement from a right-wing political operator. And she said that the Democratic Party must learn how to deal with the Jesse Jackson factor. But I said that it was unintentionally illuminative because the way that I define and describe the Jesse Jackson factor is a political calculus that places ethics above expediency places the poor above the rich, and places uh, justice over profit. And that often gets candidates in trouble because we have a system that doesn't reward truth tellers because we have a system that's based around corporate donations. So when that right-wing political operator said the Democratic Party must deal with the Jesse Jackson factor, she meant it in a disparaging way. But the way that I would say it is the Jesse Jackson factor is that which about which uses democracy to serve the people. She meant it in terms of a control mechanism. Yes. And we Jesse means it as a change Mm -hmm. mechanism. David, another thing in your book that you say is the worst nightmare for corporate exec is to get a call from Reverend Jackson. How so? Well, from the late 60s to the present, Reverend Jackson's acted as this roving bodyguard for the interests of black workers and consumers, but workers and consumers more broadly. So there's so many stories in the book 
from local businesses to multinational corporations like Toyota, that if they are engaging in racial discrimination, if they're down on workers' rights, if they're down on consumer protection, they would eventually get a call from Reverend Jackson and he would set things straight. So it, it's work that humanized our economic structure while simultaneously working with the political system to change the laws so those types of abuses aren't even possible. Economists mm-hmm. who change corporate for, to, to really be inclus- for inclusion. And then the other is the political. And then I guess in the middle, we would talk about social justice. I remember meeting with uh, Hewlett Packard in, uh, in uh, Silicon Valley. 186 white board members, 36 women, three blacks, one Latino. These Apple and all these, Twitter and all these companies didn't include so that they say, you can't come in. We bought shares of stock, like $10,000 worth of stock. When you get to shareholders meeting, they can't say no. And all of the press... Stockholders. The shareholders meeting. And, and in that setting, we raise these concerns. Why are there any blacks on the board or women on the board? Why are there C-suite? Now that there's a black on the board of, of uh, Facebook, Twitter, Apple... Uh, Amazon, and it's about 30 plus on, on boards. Have to go deeper in that because it's not enough to have a, another black and blue. You have to have training programs. So we, we use our leverage and our persona to, to force the press to deal with the hypocrisy of certain companies. Had great images on their advertisement, but not so great behind the scenes. Mm. So here's a question. This is a general question to today. What is the difference? between civil rights movement, let's say the King era, to Black Lives Matter today? Well, one thing that I learned from spending time with Reverend Jackson is people confuse the civil rights movement as an artifact in a museum, when really it's a living, breathing, evolving part of the American story. Fluid. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So now we're just in a different stage of it. And Reverend Jackson talks about that very well. I remember reading a book some time ago, and I saw some pictures, iconic pictures of students from Howard picking and saying, stop lynching. That was Black Lives Matter of their day. Other groups sitting in. So Black Lives Matter say if uh, if Trayvon Martin is killed and the killer walks free, nine people killed in Charleston, and they take, take the, they, the guy by the, to get a hamburger on the way to jail. At the church. And Michael Brown killed and laid in the streets. No Black Lives Matter. Killing us without consequence. And then George Floyd killed without consequence. What I, what I find to be fascinating now, however, is that this movement has touched something deep in, in the core part of America's character. George Floyd dying in real time killed a nerve ending that challenged our, our basic sense of humanity. It may be more white, smarter than blacks. Mm-hmm. And it's manifested itself politically. I mean, it's not, it's not just a march. These marches are turned into political sophistication. Mm. When Dr. King spoke in Washington in 63, only one black official in the whole South, Leroy Johnson, Atlanta, only one. Now, he, not, he never saw a black man of Atlanta, Augusta, Savannah, or Dallas, or Houston, or Washington, D.C. Or Chicago. Or sh- Chicago. So that the, the, the vote has, the vote in the camera, the camera exposed ugliness, the vote is power. If George Floyd had to tell his own story, Police would lie. They did lie. Lying eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. The cameras has been a big factor in exposing ugliness and the vote. 
Reverend, you've got a uh, you got a new book, Keeping Hope Alive, which is a compilation of your sermons and speeches. The, the 40 day speech has been so wild. The Herald is in that book. Amazon.com. You can get the book. Uh, and and bookstores. And bookstores and, and David's book. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about our relationship. David is a wonderful guy. He is. And he's written a wonderful book. Reverend, I, I need to tell you something. Uh-oh. So for 2020, um, Al Penn and Elsie Higginbottom and I, we nominated you for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it went to an organization. Seldom does it go to an organization, but there was a World Food Organization that had done some significant work. But uh, we're going to keep on nominating until uh, we're going to keep hope alive. We're going to keep the nomination alive. You deserve the Nobel Peace Prize, and we're going to get it. On your point on the Nobel Peace Prize, one of the fascinating aspects of I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters is there are so many stories that aren't told. So, for example, I'll let the readers get the full story, but Reverend Jesse Jackson transformed the situation for religious people in Cuba. The, the moves that Jackson made with Castro in the 80s opened up the possibility of religious freedom in that country. That's a story we're never told, but one story among many that would validate your righteous campaign for Reverend Jackson to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. The Cuba experience? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the Mandela experience. Of course. One night, Castro and I, he said, I want you to go to me to the university. And I spoke to 5,000 uh, I, said, I said, stop by the church with me. Reverend Jeremiah Wright was there, and other ministers were there on, on, on the tour of Cuba. And uh, he, he kind of walked up those steps. The ministers saw him, they almost tripped out. And you had to tell him to uh, leave his cigar. That's what they say, that's a mouth, man. <laughs> and, but what happened was, I asked, I said, why don't you go to church? He said, well, I grew up in the church. I want to be a priest. We won the mountains. We got to sit. I thought that we could be welcome at the church. Priests had guns aimed at us, protecting the, the rich, great, great girls of the rich in the church and all that stuff. So I would have burned it down, but I, I decided not to burn it down. Embrace their theology. So he, he, he wrote a book, Castro did. He led a, a lot of people out of jail that day. Wow. Reverend, thank you so much for being with us, David. Thank you for being with this wonderful book. And Reverend, thank you so much for a wonderful career and life of transforming our country and making our lives so much richer. The work continues. Including mine. We gotta keep marching, right? The work, work continues. Thank you. This has been Indigo Studio, and we thank you for being with us. This generation must offer leadership to the real world. We're losing ground in Latin America, Middle East, South Africa, because we're not focusing on the real world. That real world. We must use basic principles, support human rights. We believe in that. Support self-determination. We're built on that. Support economic development. You know it's right. Be consistent and gain our moral authority in the world. I challenge you tonight, my friends. Let's be bigger and better as a nation and as a party.